we're in a series called That's What He Said. This is week four of a series, and basically we're looking at words of Jesus that are not always easy to embrace. See, it's easy for us to read through and memorize some scriptures that Jesus said that make us feel good about ourselves or maybe uh, benefit us or maybe they're promises that we love to claim about uh, what God says about us. But, but then there's some statements that Jesus makes that aren't so easy to own and embrace and sometimes we kind of skim over those and, and kind of look past them and, and look towards the other ones that make us feel a little better. But we're taking uh, this month six weeks, maybe eight weeks, to kind of look at some statements that Jesus said that have potential to radically change our lives, but it's going to require us to accept uh, some of the things that he says and apply them to our lives even when they're difficult. And uh, so today, uh, we're going to look at something that uh, I think is really, really practical in the church world today. I think it's monumental. Um, I think it's something El Dizzle uh, illustrated in a roundabout way that uh, there's a sense that we think more highly of ourselves sometimes than we should. And Jesus has some words that kind of put us in our place. And so I want to read for us uh, some words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 23, verse number 12. Uh, it'll be on the screen. It says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Incredible words for us to live by, words that Jesus said. Uh, I love this series for the fact that I get to just share some words of Jesus and it takes a little bit of pressure off me. I don't have to say things that entertain you or uh, that blow your mind or cause you to think about things differently. I can just kind of say this is what Jesus said and hopefully uh, it'll apply to your life and change your life. Um, have you ever had that, that moment in life where you just you ate some humble pie you thought you had everything figured out. You thought you were on top of your game. You thought you had situations or circumstances under control and it turned out to be just the opposite of what you claimed. For whatever reason, I have some moments in my life that just really stand out uh, that for whatever reason, I just remember one particular occasion was in the locker room when I was in seventh grade uh, playing football. Uh, I played football in, in middle school and... Uh, conversations in the locker room sometimes migrated towards the ladies, even at that age, as sad as that could be. And I can remember a conversation where some friends of mine were all talking about some, some girls that we liked, some girls that we had our eyes on. Uh, in particular, I had my eye on a girl named Mandy. Mandy was an eighth grader, so she was older than me. And, you know, I thought, you know, that's, that's who I want to go out with. That's who I want to go with, whatever that means in those days. And, uh, but people said, man, she's in eighth grade. You'll never get her, you know, and she's, she's with so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, it's all right. It's all right. I got my backup plan. They're like, what do you mean you got a backup plan? I'm like, well, if, if she's not interested in me, you know, it's not going to break my heart because there's always Ashley. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I've heard that, you know, she's kind of into me and she's cute. You know, she's no Mandy, but she's cute. And if things don't work out with Mandy, then, you know, I can always fall back on Ashley. And um, I didn't know, but one of Ashley's cousins was one of my friends that I didn't realize was her cousin. And he went and told Ashley the conversation. And um, I just remember in class with Ashley, I don't know if it was the next day or the day after, but I can remember her 
before class started, there in front of everybody, just standing up and saying, like, I want to say something. I just want people to know that I think that Bronson Crawford is the biggest jerk in the world, and you should know that you have no chance of ever being with me. And, you know, in that moment, in my seventh grade mind, I was just devastated. I mean, it was like, my first thought was, who told her? Like, how dare they tell her that? That's none of their, her business. She shouldn't know what I think. But in that moment, what was my goal and my aim? It was to save face. It was to go to Ashley and say, listen, I don't know what you heard. I don't know why you're upset, but it's just totally not true. And, and kind of try to cover things up and make her feel like I was something different than I said I was. Okay, now that may seem petty and insignificant to you. For whatever reason, it still stands out in my mind because words that I spoke hurt someone and I put myself in a position of exalting myself, thinking more highly of myself than I should, and in the end, it led to me being humbled. It just stands out. It's a reminder of me from time to time. And in life, I think that we all have those moments. Those moments where we feel like we have everything figured out, where we can make statements confidently and with an assurance that sometimes isn't proven. And when things don't work out the way we thought they would, we sometimes eat humble pie, and it's not the most incredible feeling in the world. And our goal, unfortunately, at that moment is to try to save face, is to try to negotiate the terms of our humiliation so that we don't look as bad as we really do. Okay, and so... You know, some people have public humiliations, unfortunately. Some people have private humiliations. But we all fall into that category because we all, at some level, think more highly of ourselves than we should. Now, this morning, I don't want to talk particularly about just life circumstances and how you conduct your business or your role in your family. But I want to talk more spiritually because Jesus, when he makes this statement, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted is not speaking so much particularly to a seventh grader who has a crush on someone that he doesn't think he can get and so he has a backup plan or someone who obviously was inappropriate to make some statements. He's talking about men who claim to be religious, spiritual people who claim to have things figured out and together but who are so far from what Jesus is looking for out of us and from us Uh, that he kind of, in a way, lashes out against a group of people. And so I want to back up and I want to read this passage in some context, and we're going to reference another passage where he speaks of the same group of people. Um, Three times Jesus makes this statement, Luke 14, Luke 18, and here in Matthew 23, where he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let's look at, starting in Matthew chapter 23, Starting in verse number one, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples. So he's speaking to crowds and he's speaking to his closest followers. So all-inclusive crowds, disciples. He says these words, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, meaning the most religious people of their day. In the Jewish faith, and the Jewish religion, these would have been like the top leaders of all the religious people of the Jews. And Jesus would be referencing here that they sit in Moses' seat, meaning the seat of authority, the seat of a teacher, the seat of someone who should be an example, the seat of someone who should be leading people. And he's saying the teachers, the Pharisees, they sit in that seat. Verse number three, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Okay, so he's saying what they say 
applies to your life. You can't take it and say, I'm not going to do what they say. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. This is, this is one of the, uh, the things about religion and faith that still embrace today, that people don't practice what they preach, and so they say one thing, but they live a different life, and that's why there's so much confusion in the church world. Verse number four, this is what the teachers, the Pharisees did. It says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So they heap the law, they heap all the responsibilities that scripture has for people on top of them. And they make it difficult to follow God. They make it extremely hard and burdensome to have a relationship with God. There's rules, there's regulations, there's things you can do, there's things you can't do. And they kept making laws and laws. In fact, there were 613 of these laws that they came up with laws that made sure they obeyed certain laws, which made sure they obeyed certain laws. And they just kept adding things and adding things. But the problem was, is they loved to lord it over people. They loved to apply things to others, but they themselves didn't live under such a burden, didn't live under such a heavy load that they imposed on others. Verse number five, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. These would have been some religious accessories, so to speak. Phylacteries would have been uh, probably a leather type box that would have contained verses of scripture that they would have either tied around their head, it would have sat on their forehead or around their arm. Uh, tassels would have been representative of their love for the law. And so while most people would have tassels, they would make their tassels really long to let people know we really love the law, like we're really spiritual. And we don't just have a few scriptures that we carry around as reminders, but we have lots of scriptures. And so they would have an appearance to people as being super spiritual, hyper spiritual, so spiritual that people would look to them and say, wow, they're just so, so spiritual. But the truth is, is they were far from that. Listen to this, verse number six. It says, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. So they love for people to recognize them. They love to be honored by men and get these seats of honor, whether in the synagogue or at different banquets. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi, which means teacher, uh, to just admire them and say, hey, you're a great religious person. They loved that. They fed off that. They craved that. That was something that kind of motivated them. Verse number eight, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have only one master and you are all brothers and do not call anyone father for you have one father and he is in heaven and nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher, the Christ. And he's, he's saying to these crowds, to these disciples, you see them, you see what they're doing. That's not the way you should do it. One of the things that I kind of got accustomed to when I was in student ministry for eight years before uh, my wife and I planted this church was um, lots of the students that we were leading would call me Pastor Bronson. And I just kind of got used to it. And uh, I can remember some of my adult volunteers correcting people when they didn't call me Pastor Bronson uh, as if that was uh, an insult to me. Uh, and honestly, I loved hearing Pastor Bronson because it was a reminder to me of the calling that God has on my life. It was a reminder to me every time someone said Pastor Bronson of my responsibility that God has entrusted to me. But as we were looking to start this, this church, you know, there's, there's lots of lingo in the church world. 
If you go to certain churches today, they're going to call themselves brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, and and they're going to call the pastor pastor so-and-so, and and there's people who call themselves apostles, and there's uh, people who will correct people when they don't call them what they want to be called. And it's a really dangerous game in allowing yourself to be in a leadership position, especially a spiritual leadership position, and feeding off of people's perspective of you. It's a, it's a very dangerous thing. And so one of the things that was important to me when we started the church is I'm just, I'm Bronson. If you want to call me Pastor Bronson, especially if you're a student, if your parents think that that's appropriate for you, I, I will never tell you not to call me Pastor Bronson. I still think it's a great reminder, but, but I'm just Bronson. I'm just, I'm just someone that God has, for whatever reason, entrusted with the leadership of this church, and I'm someone who doesn't have everything together. And can I just be extremely vulnerable with you? There's a heavy burden that I feel like I carry in trying to have an appearance for people that I lead that's not always completely true. Because I don't want people to look at me in a way that would harm this church. I don't want people to look at me in a way that would harm my family. But the truth is, is like I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father to my two little boys. I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not the most spiritual person in this room. I'm gravely aware that I am not the smartest person in this room by any means. That on any day when I open up this word and I begin to share the words of Jesus to us, that there are people that know this better than me in this room, that are listening to my voice, that have studied this more than me in this room. And sometimes I feel the weight of making sure I present myself in such a way that people respect me and honor me and take me seriously. And it can be a dangerous thing. It can, and I hear these pastors calling themselves prophet or prophetess so-and-so or apostle so-and-so or, you know, I'm pastor so-and-so and and bishop so-and-so and and they may have the titles and they may have degrees and, and I get it, I understand it, but I just think that we have to be careful and imposing who we are on people to such a degree that it causes us to be exalted rather than God and Jesus and so I worked really hard to try not to do that so if I ever do that, you feel free to give me some humble pie and put me in my place and just say, listen here, you punk. You know, you think you know everything. Um, you don't. And, and so I work, I work really hard at that. And this scripture applies really a lot to me. I preach a sermon to myself this morning. I hope it, it'll apply to you and you can learn from it. But these words are pretty intense. These aren't like just casual words that Jesus says. He's... He's indicting a group of people. He's, he's causing the crowds and his closest followers to look at a group of people who they would have normally thought to be really religious and really spiritual and great leaders and causing them to see something in them that doesn't please Christ. And he makes this bold statement in verse 11 when he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. It won't be someone who wants you to serve them. It will be someone who serves you. And then he says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then we can look over at 
Luke chapter number 18, starting in verse number nine. Let me read through this with you real quick. Jesus again says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. I love how that's worded. To some who were confident in their own righteousness. You know, it's easy for us to become confident in our own righteousness. It's easy for us to get to a place in our spiritual walk where we feel like we're pretty good people. We're pretty righteous people. We, we, we pretty much have things figured out in this whole church thing and, and, we, and we're confident in our own righteousness and look down on everybody else. So Jesus told him this parable. Verse 10, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So one is a leader of leaders and one is the worst sinner of the worst sinners. Tax collectors in those days would be considered somewhat probably like today, hated people. Like the thing that they did for a living didn't benefit people. Like it caused people to be angry and mad. And so they were looked at as sinners who, who stole from people. They would take their own cuts. That's how they made a living. And so they would overtax people. And so they were just considered scum. Verse 11, it says, the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Can you just hear his, his prayer voice there? God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Have you ever heard people in their prayer voices? They pray differently than they talk. It's like, hi, my name is Bronson. Let's pray. Well, your heavenly father, God. <laughs> I guess you've heard some of that too. And so this, this Pharisee, that's what he's doing. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Can you just hear the arrogance in his spirituality? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Like, hey God, I'm the man. Like, these other people that are praying, this tax collector, I mean, they're just scum of the earth. But me, I've got everything figured out. And you can be proud of me, verse 13. But... The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, a man who realized his condition, a man who realized his position with God and came to him humbly, praying, not out of an arrogance because he had everything figured out, but out of a, a vulnerability and out of a desperation to connect with a God that he knew he had no reason to be connected to. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want us to think this morning, for the remainder of our time together, about what it looks like to exalt oneself, and what it looks like to humble oneself before God and the arrogance that we sometimes carry with us, not only in our own confidence, in our own religious experience, in our own confidence, in our own righteousness, in our own confidence, in our own ways to figure things out, but on top of that, our perspective of others who aren't as spiritual as us and don't have things figured out the way we do. You know, you know those, those feelings that you get when people do things that you would never do and you find yourself in disgust looking on them as if they're not nearly as spiritual as you. You might not do that. Um, but this is something that, honestly, I've struggled with a lot in my life. I came to know Jesus at an early age, November, November the 1st, 1987, 12 days before my eighth birthday, I accepted Christ. At a Baptist church, I walked the aisle, I prayed with the pastor. 
I went home and called my family and told them that I was a Christian, that I'd committed my life to Christ. And from that point on, I've pretty much lived for Jesus. I've been in church from that point on. My parents were good, godly parents that taught me what it meant to follow Christ. And I got to a place when I got kind of out of middle school and into high school where I began to care more about what people thought of me than what God thought of me. And if you ever get to that place, it's a dangerous place to be because you find yourself wearing big phylacteries and long tassels, meaning that you want people to think that you're spiritual, meaning you want people to look at you as someone who's probably more spiritual than truthfully you are. And I can remember making decisions. I can remember not going to certain events in high school. I can remember uh, making church such a priority that uh, I excluded a lot of things from my life, and I don't regret a lot of it, but I, I do regret some of my approach in doing it because, see, I got to a place in my life where my strategy for being a Christian was based on people's perspective of me. See, I wanted people who were far from God to look at me and say, he's super spiritual. And I wanted people who were in the church, people who loved God, to look at me and say, wow, he's just so much more spiritual than me. And the decisions that I made for a large majority of my life revolved around this idea of what are people going to think about me if I do this? And so I wouldn't go to places because I wouldn't want people to think I was associated with certain things and I wouldn't do certain things in public or when I was in company of others that I might do in private or when I was alone because I didn't want to ruin my witness. I didn't want my reputation as a Christian to be tainted. I wanted to appear perfect to people. And there were times where I worked really hard to cover up some things so that people didn't find out, so that I didn't get caught so that I didn't eat that humble pie and have to face my reality as a flawed man who needs Jesus and doesn't use Jesus to make myself look good. I found myself loving the church at the expense sometimes of my relationship with Christ. It was a sad place for me to be. It wasn't that I was far away from God. It wasn't that I had fallen away from God, and it wasn't that I had lost my focus on God. It's just that in my pursuing God, I began to crave and enjoy the attention that I got. I can remember being used as an example to different youth groups and, and being called out in church and, and people saying things that I had done and stances that I had made for God in front of the entire church and just feeling to myself like, man, that's, I'm just, I'm great, you know? I felt that. I, I thought that I was a really good Christian. And then, I don't know, some six or seven years ago, maybe not even that long, I began to understand that Jesus, he didn't really have a lot of good things to say about super spiritual people. And he didn't really have a lot of good things to say about people who thought more highly of themselves than they should have. In fact, he had a lot of things negative to say against them. In Matthew 23, after verse 12... Jesus launches into seven woes, meaning he gives seven different indictments against this group of Pharisees. He basically says, this is why they grieve me. This is why they hurt my kingdom. This is why they don't make me proud. 
As I begin to read these scriptures, I begin to ask myself honest questions. I didn't always in every situation have the heart of God for situations because I had the heart of Bronson for some situations. And, and though the heart of God may call me to do something, that might not look good the way I thought it should look. And so I found myself at a pass in life where I just decided I'm either going to stop caring what people think about me and live a life that God's called me to, or I'm not going to please Christ. It was a, for me, it was a humble pie experience. Not, not that I had some major catastrophe and made breaking headline news because I had a moral failure. It wasn't that I was leveled to the ground in my pride because I had done some major bad things. It was just the pride that I had for myself in following Christ began to outweigh my love for the words of Christ and what he was calling me to do with my life. And I began to think, something's got to change. And these words actually somewhat were part of that story when I began to feel the heaviness of Jesus' words to me to say, you know, listen, you know, you keep building yourself up and it's not going to be good for you. You need to get to a place where you can, you can humble yourself. You can love me when no one's looking more than you love me when people are looking. And you can do for me what I've called you to do when you get no attention and you get no credit. You should do that more than you should the accolades that you get and the recognition that you get. So when I look at this scripture now, he who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It gives me an approach to God. And one of the things that I like to do is ask myself, what is the source of my attention, spiritually speaking? What is the source of my attention, spiritually speaking? Like when, when I receive attention, spiritually speaking, where does that come from? And if it comes from me, by me exalting myself, by me looking a certain part, by me trying to show off or show out or say a prayer or quote a passage or whatever that looks like, if the motivation behind the attention that I'm going to get comes from me, then I realize that that's an indicator, that it's a, it's a predictor of the condition that I have with God. And so if I'm the source of my attention, it, it reveals to me that my condition is, is not humility, but that humility is something that I can expect if I don't change what I'm doing. But, but if the source of the attention that I get comes from God, if I experience some favor, some blessing, some outpouring that God allows me to experience something greater than myself for whatever reason, then that's an indicator that I have come to God with humility. That it's not something that I've done on my own, but God's accomplished something through my life because I submitted myself to him. And that's a question that I want to pose for us today. Some of you may be here and you may say, this doesn't really apply to me at all, but some of you may be here and you may kind of feel the tension that I'm talking about. You may feel that, that borderline, do I thrive off the attention that I get for being a Christian and what it means for me and what people think of me? Or do I in humility 
even sometimes hide some things that I do from God. Not from God, but from others. Some things that I do for God, I hide from others. So that maybe I don't always pray in public where people see me, but I pray more in private. So I don't always sit on a street corner reading my Bible just so people drive by and think, well, that's a spiritual person. But I can sit in my own house and read scriptures. And with a humble heart, come to God and learn from him. And allow him to speak to me without bringing the attention to myself. See, Jesus is giving us here a template that we're to lay our lives upon. And the template says, you're either going to be humble or you'll be humiliated. And if you exalt yourself, there's no way that I can be exalted in you. And so the only option is for you to be humbled. So I thought, well, if if these are Jesus' words, then, you know, how do we challenge one another in that? And so I just want us today just to leave with the thought. You know, Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before destruction, before fall. In our walks with Christ, how prideful are we? And what role does pride play in that? And the second indicator that Jesus said right before verse 12 is, the greatest among you will be your servant, is who are you serving? It's impossible to humble yourself without serving. Jesus kind of links them together. In fact, he set an example for us. He humbled himself, God sent to earth, born in a manger, not born into some royal situation. He lived a normal life, son of a carpenter, He died for us on a cross when he didn't have to, and he could have chosen not to. He humbled himself to the point to loving us that he focused less on the attention that he got for himself and more about what his role here on the earth was. And he served. One of the the greatest things that Jesus did wasn't reflected by miracles that he performed, wasn't, wasn't indicated by blind eyes that he opened or multitudes that were fed from small amounts of fish that, and bread that he multiplied. But it was the fact that the king of the universe would get up from a meal with his disciples, his followers, and he would wrap a towel around his waist and he would wash the feet of the men that he led. He would take the form of a servant And he told his disciples, you're to go and do likewise. You're to use this as an example. My heart is to serve people. It's that that God gets the glory, that people benefit from it, and I'm just blessed to be part of it. So my challenge for myself this morning, my challenge for us as a church this morning is, are we a church that is so prideful that we forget why we exist? Are we a church that cares so much about what people think about us that we forget to serve others? Are we a church that allows the the thrill of receiving accolade to outweigh the heart that Jesus has for people and for our church? If the answer is yes, then there's good news is that we we can change. That's the beautiful part about following Jesus is he doesn't expect us to be perfect from 
the first moment that we start following him. But as we hear his words and we begin to apply them to our life, we can begin to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've kind of missed your mark from my life. And I want to kind of correct that and be better. So, so here's, here's my first challenge. If you're here today and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you claim to follow Jesus, you call yourself a Christian, is what's the source of the attention that you get spiritually? Is the source of that attention derived from within yourself? Is it derived from causing people to think things of you that may not be true? Does it derive from bringing attention to acts or deeds that you do as a Christian that would make people recognize you? Or does the attention that you get come from God in the form of favor, in the form of blessings, in the form of fulfillment and hope Because if it comes from you, then that means that you have exalted yourself and that your future is going to be humbled. But if the source of the attention that you get spiritually, the thing that just drives you and makes you feel fulfilled is is when you experience God's blessings, then that means that you're probably involved in serving others and you have a heart for others because that's what Jesus did. And when you humble yourself and say, my life as a Christian is not about me, it's about others and it's about him, then you'll begin to experience some fulfillment that you've never experienced before. And so I want to challenge us as a church. In fact, I want to pray for us that God would help us to be a church that would allow our attention to be derived from him because it, reflects the condition of our heart to be humble and a servant and to love others more than we love ourselves. So let me, let me pray for us in closing this morning. Father, thank you for your words as difficult as they may seem to those of us who have a tendency to lean towards being over spiritual and have a tendency to want to look a certain way for a certain group of people and to cause people to think things about us that may not always be true or that may be completely true. Would you just help us, Father, to to humble ourselves, give us a grace that we wouldn't experience eating humble pie because we've allowed ourselves to get so far that the only way for us to come back would be for us to experience a calamity. But would you just stir our hearts right now to be a, a church and a people that loves people and serves people and does it with a motivation not to get something in return or recognition, but simply for you to get glory and for people to be blessed and strengthened. I pray as we seek to be that church that you would just pour out your favor and your blessing on the lives of the families and the individuals who are here. In our journey the attention that we thrive off of spiritually would come from you as a result of living humble lives and serving others. I pray that you would grant that reality for us in Christ's name. Amen. And before we end our time together, I want to speak now to to some of you who may not be close to Christ. To those of you who may be here today and you may just come out and say, listen, I got nothing to hide. I don't, I don't know about this whole church thing and I don't have everything figured out and I don't claim to be close to God. I'm just kind of here checking things out. I'm just kind of here trying to figure things out on my own.
I think one of the most arrogant stances and approaches that we can have with God is an approach to God that doesn't depend on him or doesn't need him. It's an approach to God that says, I have my life under control so much that if God's not part of my life, I'm perfectly fine. And it's an arrogant approach that says, you're God for some people, but you're not God for me, and I've chosen to live for myself, and I sit on the throne of my own life, and everything that I do is for me, and I can make enough money, or I can have enough prestige, or I can accomplish enough to bring fulfillment to myself. And it's this arrogant approach that we have with God. And maybe, just maybe, you're here today, and maybe God just spoke to your heart, and you just realized for the first time that the result of living a life without Christ, a result of having a, a self-sufficient, arrogant approach to God that says, I don't need you, you don't mean anything for my life, and I've got everything under control, is going to result in a humbled eternity for a lot of people. Where everything that they lived for and that they thought would bring them satisfaction in life is ultimately going to be the biggest letdown when they come to the end of their life. And this morning, maybe for some of you, you just realize the position that you have with Christ is really a pretty arrogant position where you just kind of don't really need him and feel like what he offers isn't as fulfilling as what you can bring yourself. And if that's you today, I would get on my knees and beg you if I could to kind of change your position, but I know that only God can work and stir in your heart to do that. If that's you and you feel like you have a self-exalted approach to life that doesn't depend on Christ, and there's no humiliation, there's no humbleness, there's no humility that says, it's not about me, it's all about him. And today, for whatever reason, you feel like God is drawing you to live a God-first life, to kind of reverse that approach to God that says, I don't need you, and you don't have much to offer me, and say, I need you completely, and without you, I'm nothing. That's the approach that God wants us to have with him. And so if that's you and you're here today, I'm going to say another prayer. I just want to invite you to say this prayer. You can say it to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud, but it's just a prayer that I'm going to lead you in that just basically says, I'm tired of being my own God, and I'm tired of being so arrogant in saying that this church stuff and this religion stuff and this God stuff is not for me. And I'm going to change that today. I'm going to embrace Christ and what he has for my life. And I'm going to put him first. And I'm going to submit and humble myself before a holy and living God. And allow him to radically transform and bring life to my dead spirit. So if that's you, let's just all bow our heads. And I'm, as I lead this prayer, would you just say this in your heart? God, I'm sorry for being so arrogant and thinking I don't need you or you don't have much to offer me. And the truth is, I am nothing without you. And today, I realize that. And I want to take myself off the throne of my life and invite you to be my Lord, to be my Savior, to be my King. I want to live for you and you alone I want to submit who I am to who you are and what you have for me. I accept you as my Savior. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.